0: Welcome, everyone. Happy New Year. So we're still here. (laughs) Most of you know that's a joke. A few of you may be (laughs) new enough to the organization to know that we have set probably four or five dates for when we'd be in our new building. And here we still are in our old building. But it is getting closer probably by February 1st, we'll be in a new building that the center owns, which is seven blocks due west on the same street, on 26th Street, but at the corner of 27th Avenue and 26th Street, um, kitty corner from the hexagon bar. (laughs) So if you're not on our mailing list, you may want to get on our email mailing list so that you hear about that change. The worst case would be you'd come here and you'll see a sign that says, we're in the new building. And then you can just drive down so I thought at the beginning of the new year it might be nice to do something that's very much part of the, the Buddhist tradition which you could call contemplation or a direct inquiry and uh, it's nice because we like to think and a lot of the times when we're hearing meditation instructions it sounds like thinking is bad so here thinking is good but it's just about like how we use thinking. Are we using thinking in a way that gums up the mind? Are we using thinking in a way that clears up the mind, frees up the mind? And so inquiry or contemplation is useful when it leads to a, a clarification of what's going on right now. That's called right thinking or good thinking. And thinking that's not so wholesome is the thinking that, tends to lead to more proliferation and the mind gets more confused or more complicated more gummed up and uh, that's not so useful and the thing about right thinking or inquiry is it has to begin in the present moment and the question has to be a relevant question relevant in the sense that it's addressing something i don't know if universal is the right word but uh, it's addressing something that uh has a deeper resonance like even something like uh why am i here you know why did i come to common ground tonight or why am i interested in meditation practice why am am i interested in buddhism and so let's just uh allow the inquiry to unfold so we just hold that question inquiry isn't like we're it isn't so much about the answer it's more about the question so it's like we throw the question out in the space of the present moment in the mind we just throw it out there and we don't feel obliged to do anything with it we just throw it out there like why am i here what am i interested in what am i looking for What is the heart seeking? And answers might arise. It's not me answering the question. You just see if answers come. Like, well, I want to be happy. Or I want relief or release from something, from oppression, you know, from stress. Often when we ask questions, we tend to not allow the question to have its effect. We kind of rush to an answer. Like, you know, why am I here? And and then there may be answer, well, I want to become a meditator. You know, and then we're immediately into the mode of becoming that meditator. You know, maybe we'll sit up straight. Instead of being sloppy, we'll all of a sudden get serious about our meditation practice. Oh, yeah into the breath or just get tight about becoming something and this is in a way a, a, an archetype of our central problem as human beings is we rush into the answers like although it's probably clear to most of us most of the time that that uh, we have some difficulty with life we experience stress or we, we experience some kind of a burden, being a human being. But mostly we don't know that experience because we're so busy seeking to address, you know, to cover up that experience of being a burdened, stressed human being. Like we're rushing to the next pleasant sense experience, whatever that might be for us, you know, rushing to turn the news on. Or rushing to get to the next thing and when we're there we'll rush to the next thing or rushing into some distraction you know like to lose ourselves in our book or in our magazine or in whatever we tend to lose ourselves in so the Buddha really emphasizes taking our time with the question You know why am i here why am i interested in meditation and in that question like it what it does is it illuminates maybe a deep uneasiness or maybe not so maybe deep but not so obvious so i'm not saying like it's an obvious uneasiness but just a subtle and deep uneasiness one of the best uh, terms I've heard for this is existential itch. I like that term. So there's a kind of inner restlessness, inner disturbance, inner pain, fear, anxiety, longing, craving, emptiness, not in the Buddhist sense. You know, usually we think of the word empty. In Buddhism, it's like empty of self-centeredness. But Here, an emptiness, like a hollowness, like there must be something missing when we tune in. So generally, if we hang out long enough with the question, we begin to notice something like that existential itch, different for each of us. I mean, the particular flavor is different, but its characteristics might be very similar, like the characteristic, of not wanting to be with that feeling not wanting to see what's there you know behind the question like why am I interested in meditation you could of course it such as meditation like why am I rushing to the next thing is basically the same question why am I seeking security in life why am I seeking a new relationship more money in my job because of this uneasiness mostly i mean i I don't think exclusively but mostly there is this uneasiness and in buddhism we call this dukkha more than almost any principle it's not really a principle as much as a pointing out something that's true for all of us is this term is this um experience of dukkha dukkha comes from the term of a wheel that's out of true and because it's out of true doesn't the wheel doesn't work very well so the Buddha suggests that there is dukkha this is his first noble truth so there is dukkha that means there is something about this life that's out of true you know in the way that we're living it it's not it's it's not inherent but given how we live given our understanding the view we live the views we live with life is uh tends to be for most of us most of the time clunky it doesn't quite roll along smoothly and you know we should this should be really obvious certainly it's obvious when we take a kind of a sweeping look at the world and we see the injustices and the the violence and the loneliness and the just the pain of human existence or just of existence in general beyond even the human existence like uh, when and I were observing over the last few years as we've become more conscientious about having black sunflower seeds out at a bird feeder, over the years there seem to be more and more and more squirrels and more squirrel nests in the trees and uh, I also am noticing that we have a type of maple tree that surrounds the backyard, probably 15, 20 trees. And uh, those seeds usually last all winter long. But I'm noticing the seeds are almost gone. And our crabapple tree right on the boulevard, all the little crabapples are already gone. And so even in the realm of squirrel land, you know, it's like these inevitable unavoidable cycles, right, where the population increases, food supply decreases, you know, and starvation ensues, and the population goes down, and there's lots of food for the squirrels, and the population increases. So even in, you know, because it's easy to think, well, there's of course there's dukkha for human beings because, you know, we're mean and evil but not squirrels or not but but this is a this dukkha characterizes existence you see it wherever you look it looks you know the particular flavor of dukkha is different but there is dukkha everywhere all you have to do is watch little baby birds squawk ceaselessly at their moms to bring them worms or moms and dads to bring them worms to get how oppressive it is you know, To give birth and to be responsible, you know, to have this primitive urge to take care of the young and there's literally endless need, you know, until they all have this wonderful instinct to kick them out of the nest (laughs) and then there's next year and it repeats itself. So the Buddha's not trying to be morbid about dukkha, you know, this teaching of dukkha, he's He's just trying to help us come more in alignment with the way it is because the most oppressive aspect of dukkha surprisingly maybe is our avoidance of feeling dukkha this is really the dukkha we can do something about and it's the dukkha that really smarts is how much of our life energy is spent avoiding dukkha avoiding understanding so not not intellectually understanding dukkha but really coming right into the middle of the experience of our uneasiness in life so in any moment to whatever degree the heart is not perfectly content perfectly at ease to that degree we have this aspiration to understand So we want to understand any discontentment any disease any existential itch that might be alive in the heart moment to moment again not to be morbid about it but because it's the not seeing dukkha that keeps us trapped in cycles of dukkha in cycles of suffering where we're actually adding to the the already difficult state of being a human being or being a living being we we increase the dukkha by not seeing it and not just not seeing it but not understanding it so just the basic inquiry like why am I doing this if we don't rush to an answer it just pulls us into the experience what What is it? Like, so I want to be happy, but what is the experience of unhappiness now? Like, how do I know I want to turn the news on? Like, what is it about this moment that is compelling me to turn the news on or to pick up the book or to go to the fridge or to go see a movie or to do whatever we're going to do? And sometimes what motivates the heart is love, really beautiful and wholesome. And then we we can just sort of flow with that intention, that motivation. But when the motivation is to avoid the yucky feeling, the uneasiness, then we might have enough presence to be interested. Well, instead of just rushing into some temporary uh, attempt to avoid this feeling, to deny this feeling, to distract myself from this feeling... To cover it up maybe I should spend a moment to understand it better what is this feeling of uneasiness there's so much to be learned right here in spiritual life on this path we call Buddhism the path of awakening there's so much to be learned because one of the things we learn just in this first step of understanding there is this relevant question like why am i running there's a german proverb what's the use of running when we don't know where we're going (laughs) and so i think this is very useful it has been used to be up on our bulletin board here at the center for i don't know a long time five years back in the uh, mid 90s what's the use of running when we don't know the way so what we want to do is feel that impulse to run. And we learn so much. We may not even understand like, the uneasiness in the heart, but what we can learn very quickly, that, and it's a deep insight in the sense that it really supports happiness for us, is we can begin to understand how so many of our attempts to avoid feeling what we feel don't help. So we can start weeding out a lot of the activity of our life that's not really leading to happiness. You know, a lot of our neurotic, addictive behaviors. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. And we're also familiar that they're hard. It's hard to let go of those neurotic, addictive behaviors. But the reason it's hard, the only reason it's hard to let go of neurotic, addictive behaviors is because we haven't taken the time, we don't know a way To see clearly that these neurotic addictive behaviors are neurotic and addictive meaning that they're suffering if we really see that our behaviors are suffering eventually if not quickly we abandon them but it's we're confused I mean maybe we kind of know that this addictive behavior is unpleasant or harmful but we kind of like it you know we're in this middle or gray zone where we we still feel like it's feeding us in some way but we're suspicious whether it's really good so it's this sort of place where we don't immediately seek to be happy but we're trying to contemplate the experience of being discontent the experience of feeling needy the experience of wanting to distract ourselves or wanting to go somewhere to do something and we practice staying put, so that we can see that that impulse is just an impulse, and that impulse is leading us in a direction that doesn't bear any lasting result, any useful result. But if we didn't have this inclination to stay put, we'll never learn that lesson. You see now why meditation is such a a great metaphor for the whole path, because meditation practice you know the sitting practice for example its you know it's exactly that where we put ourselves down for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever and of course maybe at times we experience some deep peace or quiet in the mind some real bliss wholesome bliss but a lot of times what we notice which is just as healing actually just as insightful As those moments when we're feeling deep bliss and peace a lot of the times what we notice is one moment after another an impulse to go to do to fix and even if somehow we've convinced ourselves not to get up we still the mind can still do and fix right how many problems have you tried to fix in your sets in your meditation periods how many plans have we planned how many interpersonal relationships have we thought over you know trying to figure out how to blame them or how to resolve this or so we're still in this doing mode but because of the form like sitting still and being relaxed and this is the kicker of course giving our mind something neutral to do like follow the experience of the breath going in and out Or be present with the sounds or be present with the experience of the body sitting because we give the mind this instruction to pay attention to something neutral all of this doing habit starts to stand out now it's easy to think that that's a problem but that's the point the point is to let that doing becoming energy to let it stand out we want it to stand out Because we want to see it for what it is like that it's habit as opposed to being self right are you doing all that doing stuff no it's just happening because it's been in a sense wound up it's the habit of the mind to want to be doing to want to be going on to the next thing to become somebody or to basically run to not feel what we're feeling so when we give ourselves this form of sitting still, being relaxed, giving the mind something neutral to do that requires its ongoing moment to moment attention, then we really see the habits of the mind. And that clash between the habits of the mind and this form which you call being present. You know in in meditation it has some particular uh, qualities to it but it's really just about being present the clash between our habits and this intention to be relaxed and present receptive to the present moment that's called the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha right the dukkha that leads to more dukkha is when we don't realize There is no resistance to our habit energy. We just flow with our habit energy. That's also dukkha, but that's dukkha that leads to more dukkha, right? Because we're reinforcing a pattern that doesn't resolve the basic existential itch, the basic uneasiness in the heart. All it does is temporarily... Help us avoid feeling what we're feeling but we have a deal with the devil like in order to avoid feeling what we're feeling we have to do this we have to tighten up right because I, I'm I use this sort of willful becoming you know moving on doing distracting denying resisting I use that to avoid which is pain of course all that I use that pain to avoid feeling pain you see how unproductive that is and it and it starts to build on itself it's a real negative feedback loop so meditation practice it's also painful not always but often it's unpleasant it's unpleasant because we notice that force of craving or tanha is the pali word tanha, actually more than craving it's thirsting or this uh clinging grasping quality like we're grasping uh, away from that pain that inner pain trying to destroy it trying to get away from it but it's a it's the basic uh habit energy of meeting pain with pain so instead we train the mind to meet pain with presence so here it's also painful because we're feeling the impulse to do what our habit is which is to deny it or distract ourselves from it or destroy it but we're not acting those impulses out and that's painful because the habit even though the habits a painful habit it's got momentum from having been identified with and acted out so many times so because it's like a river it's got momentum but now we're not doing the river we're going upstream or at least not just staying present so at first it takes some real effort and that hurts you know it it, that resistance we're resisting the force of our habit like just the for example just the habit or just the resistance of the impulse to get up and move you know just staying relatively still for 30 minutes difficult for most people especially in the beginning and if it isn't for you just sit for an hour (laughs) keep sitting (laughs) until it becomes difficult (laughs) but really that's the kind of instructions you get if you go to some of the monasteries in Asia you know if you sit and it's just bliss the the teacher would say well just sit longer (laughs) sit until you begin to see your habit energy kick in And it will either be, you know, sitting for longer periods of time or it's just, you know, if there's a lot of happiness and bliss, it won't be long, maybe a few months before the whole thing shifts. And the the relative calm and happiness, it's like a vacuum in a mine, a nice vacuum. And, And what do vacuums do? It creates space for unfinished business, you know, all that stuff that we've suppressed for decades all that unfinished emotional business, maybe from previous lifetimes, who knows, all of that gets sucked, pulled into the vacuum of our samadhi, our quiet, peaceful mind. So no matter how quiet or peaceful your sits are, generally speaking, either in a sort of dramatic fashion, or for some people in a very slow, steady way, it will draw in unfinished business until there isn't any unfinished business to draw in. That's just the nature of the practice. So it isn't just meant to be a smooth ride. It's it's the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. You can think about the spiritual path that way. So instead of thinking the spiritual path is we get on this training, you know, take on the Buddha's instructions or somebody's instructions, and our life goes from being difficult to being less difficult to being even less difficult. But I think what's more truthful is we get on a spiritual path and there are glimpses on that path that this path is wholesome in the sense that it really leads to a lasting peace, a lasting um, release and opening of the heart, a kind of wholeness that we often call love or compassion. But the movement forward in that direction toward what we aspire to, wisdom, compassion, is not pleasant. It's really difficult. But you know, as human beings, or maybe all it's true for all beings, we don't mind pain if it's healing. What's troublesome to us is when life is difficult and it's not leading anywhere, or just leading to more difficulty. That's unbearable and the only way human beings bear those kind of that kind of life is they're so distracted by their habit energies they don't realize that they're literally accumulating suffering accumulating stress accumulating oppression in their life So this per- first part of practice, where we uh, begin to inquire, like, why am I doing this? But not on not a superficial way, but just like looking at the force of doing, being the doer, wanting to become, wanting to get. Which includes also wanting to get rid of, that's just the flip side of wanting to become. Wanting to become the person who doesn't have this anymore, the person who's gotten rid of this. So, when we look at that, the Buddha's instruction, and it's so nice to have this pointing out, because otherwise we're just going to keep rushing into solution. But the B- Buddha's instruction is we just hang out there. So, in that first noble truth that there, where the Buddha says there is suffering, he's, it's meant to be this contemplation where we're bringing this active inquiry to the experience of suffering or stress and he says there are three insights we have first is that there is suffering that there is stress there's at times in our life and the second insight is to see that it's relevant meaning we we don't want to just run from it we want to understand it it's like it's it's instructional this is this experience of dukkha teaches us how to live our life and if all we're doing is running from it or denying it or distracting ourselves from it we miss the instruction so we live our life without ever having read the instructions and that's why you know things are so messy for us most of the time it's because we've never read the instructions that came with the you know the package (laughs) and here we are a human being You know, nobody's read the instructions. And the instructions, you know, that's, in Buddhism we call that Dhamma, which is the way things are. We never pay, we never use our mind to look at the way things are because we have this kind of built-in arrogance out of habit that we think we know. You know, we know what we should do. But actually that's just cultural programming for the most part, you know. A little bit genetic programming and a little bit cultural programming. And of course, it's not very sophisticated. <laughs> I mean, when you look at our cultural programming, things like, uh, you know, sexism, racism, classism, you know, all the ways that we're programmed, it doesn't take much to realize how primitive and uh, sort of ineffective the kind of programming we get. So, the way that we overcome that programming, whether it's genetic or Uh, learned is by understanding it for what it is so it's not like we can you know if we have tendencies if we've been um, born into a culture where there's racism for example or sexism or whatever then it isn't like somehow we're going to become a different kind of person but what we can definitely do is we can understand The kind of person we are understand the conditioning and what that is like to have that fear to have that rage to have that uh whatever ignorance oh it's like this that everyone all of us can do but we have to read the instructions which you know reading the heart being present with how it is when we're sitting when we're moving about in the world and we learn some deep things, like, uh, for example, we learn gratifying desire doesn't lead to any end of desire. I mean, that's one of the things we learn by reading the instructions of our heart. So here we are, you know, some just a simple example. So let's say we're doing, we're practicing in city meditation as opposed to practicing in daily life, and we feel a desire to. Scratch an itch. So my nose itches, and I'm sitting there, and I notice the desire to scratch my nose, and you know I do, and that particular itch goes away, but it doesn't it at all diminish the force of desire. What it really does is, like if you notice that, or well, here's a better example: like a mosquito lands in you, or a fly lands in, on you when you're sitting. And you swat it away you know and there's some relief but it in no way diminishes the problem when the fly lands on you again in fact you're you're more dependent on shooing the fly away the next time because you shoot it away before which means you're more afflicted by having flies landed on you because you shoot it away so if you've shoot a fly away ten thousand times in your life then it's really hard not to shoot away the 10,000 and first time the fly lands on you. Or if we've we've responded to loss with anger, whatever kind of loss, you know, 20,000 times in our lives, then it's really hard not to be afflicted when we have loss. Or when we have gain, when something falls in our lap, something we want, we get and we have responded with attachment, oh, this is mine, you know, 100,000 times, then it's really hard not to be attached when something good happens to us. So we really see the um, ineffectiveness of craving, of attachment and aversion. That gratification doesn't go anywhere. How many times have we shoot a fly away how many times have we had a tasty something to eat but are we less dependent on having a tasty something to eat we become more dependent you know an example i use is you know with uh, clothing or beds or whatever your particular obsession is you know some people it's kitchen gadgets some people it's you know having the organic cotton mattress with the wall cover You know, and the particular blankets, and or even better, you know, how many, what's the thread count on your sheets? That's, you know, is it 450? I've seen something, I think, once in a catalog, 700. I don't know if that's like threads per square inch. Does anybody know what that is? Something like that. You know, and the thing is, once you start, like, some people are completely oblivious. You could give them 100% polyester sheets. They wouldn't even know right? But then once you point it out to them, you know, and you train them, then all of a sudden they can't sleep with polyester sheets anymore. They need 50-50 sheets, you know? And then someday they stay with uh, somebody who has, you know, 100% cotton sheets, and they go, oh my goodness, this is so much better. And then on and on like that. Then how many threads per square inch of your cotton sheets? And so this is true in so many areas of our life, and we really can get gratification doesn't lead anywhere gratifying our desires it doesn't mean that it's bad to gratify a desire like if you're feeling hungry or if you are feeling like when you go home it would be nice to have a cup of miso soup or whatever you like to have before you go to bed it doesn't make it bad what's bad is if we think that cup of soup is somehow gonna change our lives it's going to be this temporary experience of pleasantness If we get attached or identified with that as an end in itself it just makes it harder to be satisfied in the future that's all but if we can have the soup without getting identified with the experience so it's just soup it's just warm salty you know that if it's just on that level that level of being present then it's not a problem But if it's being driven by this existential itch as if having a soup is going to address this then what we're doing is reinforcing the delusion and actually the hunger that sort of itch itself gets stronger because the more we identify and believe it the the realer it is the more real it is the more we feel that inner hunger but just let it be inner hunger The weaker it gets and that's really the principle of this path of awakening is to understand dukkha in order to go beyond dukkha but we don't understand dukkha by running from it by identifying with it we understand dukkha by understanding it by opening by being present by inquiring looking into it there is dukkha it should be understood it has been understood these are the three insights of the first noble truth so I'll leave it here so that we have some time I'm sure many of you can relate to some of the things I've said and maybe could share from your own experience your own sort of inquiry into your experience and the insights the clarification that came out of that inquiry or maybe the where you've gotten is that the inquiry into that you're stuck which is a good insight to, to know that you're caught by the Habit, the force of habit. And of course, any questions that you have about the talk are appropriate. Yeah, Leslie.
1: Um, last night I had, well, yesterday I had an incident that I don't think I managed very well. And um, so I came home and just tried to kind of be with it. And my mind got really racy and it went on for like six hours of, you know, trying to sleep. And it's mostly this habit of trying to figure out why I did what I did. Or what really happened or what caused it. You know, that's what's driving the whole <laughs> thing. If I figure out why, then I'll relax, I'll be better. And um, and I really feel stuck with that. Yeah. That's my total habit. And I don't know, you know, where I'm getting at, but that, but that's how I should seek And it it starts going at such a rapid pace, and I'm aware of it, and then I spend time being negative on myself, and
0: then
1: I get into some side streams of it. And then I'm just exhausted. Yeah.
0: Just exhausted. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think it's a a relevant question, uh, especially for the talk tonight. And maybe some of you um, sort of get what's going on and and what Leslie described but it's this ancient habit Uh, Einstein has this great line um, evidently that he said to somebody which is you can't solve a problem with the mind that created the problem you need a different mind you need a different view a different perspective than the one that created the problem so this is this is the i think what's going on here is that a problem arose in your life maybe some difficult interaction you came back home you reflected on like how did that happen but what you didn't notice in the reflection in the contemplation is that you were trying to solve a problem which is your heart hurt and you were trying to get rid of that hurt you were trying to understand the dukkha In order to make the dukkha go away but that's not contemplation that's I mean in the way that I'm talking about it that's called fixing it that's just more doing it's just another way of running from the pain except in this case we're running from the pain by trying to figure it out we're analyzing it in order to make it go away but it's part of being on the treadmill so here's the, this is important because it gets very subtle as you can tell from Leslie's example. That would appear to be like really a wholesome thing to do, to go home and to contemplate like why am I hurting so much? And it's uh, the essence and the path that the Buddha taught is it's all about intention. If your intention in your mind, that's what you have to see, is about trying to get rid of the dukkha, then it's off. Your intention has to be To understand it and the way you know your intention is to understand it is there's a kind of fearlessness of a willingness to be vulnerable or to be undefended with the pain the uncertainty the disturbance in your heart that's actually there that's alive in you that's that's the demonstration that I am interested in understanding this pain understanding this disturbance and so we don't want to rush to a solution it's more about understanding for the sake of understanding the solution arises from that uh, wholehearted undefended uh, presence you know willingness to understand and and it doesn't mean that you figured out like what to do next time or you figure out what to do with the pain. It's, it's more that we have come into a peaceful coexistence with the pain. That's the resolution to dukkha. Re, remember, dukkha is inherent in, in existence. So even if we're the most competent human being, even that human being has dukkha. But what a human being can do, you know, using the Buddha and the enlightened beings, you know, there are many, many, according to the tradition, many, many thousands of beings who had the same awakening, the Buddha. The Buddha's awakening wasn't more profound than other, you know, students of his. And according to the teachings, those people that are fully enlightened, they still live in this world where there's loss, where there's pain but their way of relating to loss and pain is to understand it not to run from it not to try to fix it not to try to make it other than it is but to understand it as nature instead of as self and so even with the th- the kind of dukkha that seems so personal We want to understand it as nature it's a force of nature that happens to be alive in this mind or this heart and it's like this and our job as a seeker of truth is to is to be present with it you know it's like to sit right with it or to stand right with it or to be with it to give it space to be it be what it is because it already is this you know and so to be in a hurry to make it other than it is is more dukkha it's exactly that treadmill experience so not only were you feeling the effect of that difficult interaction then you you were feeling the effect of whatever it is you whipped up in your attempt to address the pain from your interaction and uh, the Buddha calls out the second arrow you know as living beings we inevitably will get stuck with an arrow but as an ignorant human being We tend to shoot a second arrow in which is an inefficient ineffective attempt to get rid of the first unavoidable error that when two individuals interact sometimes it's going to be painful and sometimes it's going to be beautiful and uh, when it's beautiful we practice feeling the beauty without the attachment when it's painful we practice feeling being with the pain without taking it personally Doesn't mean we don't apologize. Doesn't mean we don't fix it. But the mind isn't clinging to the event in a way that's like shooting that second arrow in. Thanks for the good example, Leslie. Still more time? Yeah, Tom.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, but when it comes back then the momentum of wisdom will be stronger because if you met it with wisdom once then the likelihood of being able to meet it with presence the second time is greater because now that's become a habit now it still may not be as strong of a habit as the reaction but now at least it's it's got some legs so the possibility of being present might re-emerge yeah i forgot your name mary, mary. How meeting an afflictive uh, experience with presence gives rise to joy well immediately there is joy in having something skillful to do as I mentioned earlier in the talk one of the most oppressive feelings that I think we have as human beings is when we feel helpless like there's pain and all we can think of doing just increases the pain And we feel so helpless and kind of like life has no meaning. So when there is something skillful we can do, immediately, even though the whole activity itself is painful, like what we're feeling is painful, and practicing being present and study with the pain is painful, it feels good to have something skillful to do, something that we know, that we trust, is wholesome. Does not increase suffering, but alleviates suffering in the long run. So just on that level, it's really uh, there's a kind of joy. And then as as the depth and steadiness of our mindfulness of our presence increases, then when we're there, right with let's say a difficult afflictive state, there is a transformation that happens, or transmutation, where See, the, the suffering depends on the identification. So initially, when there's an afflictive state, what makes it afflictive is the identification. It's We're taking it personally. But immediately, this is even before deep insight. So this is available. This happens to all of us already in this room. But we don't see it clearly probably all the time. But as, as we establish a sense of steady, uh, powerful sense, confidence, and presence, then in a sense, and I'm just using words that don't quite fit, we've gone from being identified with the afflictive human being, the being that experienced loss and doesn't like it, to the stable, grounded, present human being that knows that loss feels like this. So just that transformation. Is a movement toward whether you call it joy or release you know but it's the joy of release the release of being from more afflicted to less afflicted. so being see we're still kind of in a dualistic mode I'm the guy who knows the feeling of loss but there's there's more space in the heart and mind when we're uh, relating in that way more possibilities, more creativity, less affliction, less oppression. Then if we're, if we're there longer, or with more powerful mindfulness, then there's even a more profound flipping, uh, release into joy, where all uh, states of mind, all states of the body, are seen as nature, not self, including the sense of knowing itself. And so there's like uh, the bottom falls out and there's nothing but joy or release. And that's called like awakening to the unconditioned. So it's a moment of real liberation. So there are many stages of joy in this practice and the Buddha says that. He says this practice tastes good, is beneficial in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So no matter how deep our practice is in any moment, any movement in that direction We'll have the flavor of freedom or release or joy or whatever word you want to call it it's just a question of how deep it is and that's you know the more steady the presence the awareness or mindfulness is the more possible the deeper the more possible it is to have a deep insight as opposed to a more superficial one that any amount of presence is going to have a positive effect on our experience yeah, S- Shannon. S- yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Sh- um, I just I have kind of a ridiculous question. Um, so you said that um, well, I know a lot of Buddhist teachings are um, the inherently afflicted state of habit, mm-hmm. and then you said um, it seems you're also saying though that it's it's not. I just want to clarify it's not habit itself. It's wholesome or unwholesome habit.
0: You said the happen- yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It, I'm just
0: trying to get this clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question. It's a subtle question, but it's a good question. So initially, yeah, we're, we're moving from bad habit, habits that lead to suffering, you know, basically habits flavored with self-centeredness to habits flavored with the absence of self-centeredness like universal love or compassion. But But even those habits... Are afflictive they're just much less afflictive they, they have a lot of good results you know if all your habits were unconditional love uh, it'd be you'd be a pretty happy person but still being identified with the habits of unconditional love is it's subtly afflictive so then we'd even want to uh, dispense with the habit of having habits or Uh, like needing to be identified with any of the conditions of the mind even the really wholesome conditions of mind so there may be habits but there's no identification with any of the habits so there's really two parallel processes in a spiritual path one is we're trans and I think this goes beyond Buddhism I don't think this is any I think any authentic spiritual path that really addresses suffering are going to do two things we're going to be transforming our habits from habits that are self centered to habits that aren't so self-centered. And this parallel and more profound part of the path is we're we're beginning to relate to all habits, skillful and unskillful, as forces of nature as opposed to mind. Both of those happen in parallel. Sometimes we're this is getting more emphasized and we're really kind of obsessed with getting rid of our negative habits and having more positive habits sometimes this more subtle part of practice dominates where we're really trying to see that all of the habit energy of the mind is just nature it's just habit energy it's not self but we can't neglect either end of those or either of those uh, aspects of the path they have to really mostly work in parallel with one another otherwise it gets imbalanced like if all we do this there it gets to be a there's a certain arrogance like nothing matters it doesn't matter if i have bad habits or good habits you know and you see that happening even in buddhist communities where teachers have kind of seen themselves above you know ethical conduct like what well, doesn't matter it's all empty you know and they they do things that are obviously inappropriate and causes for suffering, but somehow they don't understand because they're in this they've kind of over emphasized this and their practice is out of balance. Or people can get really tight about wanting to be perfect. And that itself is a <laughs> form of suffering, you know, being so concerned about doing something that's harmful is itself harmful. So it needs to be in balance. Yeah. So, um,
1: Realm, and then once you do that it's a form of
0: attachment Yeah it inevitably will be identified with being that wholesome person or that person who's wholesome in this way um, but that's okay because it's better than being the person who's unwholesome, you know but but we just our work isn't done. So it's really good to transform negative habit energies to more positive ha- habit energies. There's no doubt about it. It's good for us. It's good for others. But it's just not the end all. It's just part of the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rebecca. You know, a lot of those sketches of people who are like, that, that
1: big fat stomach and something like that, and after, well, I mean, it seems like um, after that whole, I mean, I know some of the stories so I'm not going to go into that, but I mean, after, um, I mean, did he use fasting as a It mm-hmm. seems to me fasting would be a convenient way to kind of to, to get into sort of an observatory uh, way where you kind of look at some of this habit, energy. You, you know what I mean, similar to meditation. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Like, uh, meditation and fasting in conjunction with that, so that you could really just sort of observe that stuff. Was he into heavily into fasting? Um
0: well, for years he did uh, before his enlightenment. He he did it to the extreme, and then abandoned that. But but there is uh. But I think it, as a general uh, statement, I think it's true that uh, skillfully playing with renunciation and restraint, like reducing food intake, going away from. Uh, speech, like going someplace where you're in silence for a while or away from media for a while, all those things, practicing even celibacy for a while, like people do when they go on retreat. It's really useful because, like you're suggesting, Rebecca, it kind of shows up our habit energy. Yeah. By the way, that big guy you see a lot that looks sort of like Buddha is actually a sort of maybe historic but a m- somewhat mythic figure in Chinese Buddhism. A Ho Ti, Ho Anybody know how it's pronounced? Ho Tai. Yeah, Bonnie just uh, gave some statues of that out, um, and there's a whole bunch of legends. And children loved him, and he's kind of uh, a Buddhist figure and folk figure in uh, ancient Chinese Buddhism. And a lot of people see him as Buddha just because, you know, they don't understand the difference. But yeah, he is—he was a Buddhist monk, however, at least traditionally, that's how it was described. So let's leave it here. Take a moment. Let go of the words. It's always nice to take a few seconds and appreciate being here together and connecting with some gratitude Like how nice it is to have a beautiful center, beautiful community and these simple and wise teachings that have been passed on for so many generations because men and women have cultivated awareness, learned what they learned and shared it as best they could starting from the Buddha or maybe even before the time of the Buddha on down to today, to this corner of Minneapolis, so it's really amazing, and we have this opportunity to integrate these teachings, let them become part of who we are, as a way of taking care of our lives, and taking care of all of our loved ones, and really taking care of all beings by cultivating wisdom and compassion, so may this be true for all of us. Thanks again for coming. Thanks to Jerry and Michelle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.